Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, New Hampshire revives a controversial school voucher bill. Martha's Vineyard Ferries, out of the water, again. And a Rhode Island plan to woo new residents with cold cash. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, Boston mommy bloggers help other moms go through the journey of motherhood, even while facing challenges themselves. Exploring their own personal narrative as modern moms on this Mother's Day. But first, joining me from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome back, Arnie. Happy Mother's Day. Happy spring. It's a pleasure to be back. (laughs) Joining me from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Kelly. And joining me from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello again, Paul. Hello, Kelly. And I'm starting with you, Paul, because the ferry cancellations have just really gone to front page news now. Um, It started out, at least from my recollection, with the one ferry, the Martha's Vineyard, which had been refurbished but seemed to continue to break down. And now we find out there's been all kinds of trip cancellations because of ferry problems. Where are we now on the ferry situation? Yeah, well, at least at the moment, the ferries are running. Uh, But at at any moment, they could not be running. And that's been the case really uh, all year. There have been uh, 549 ferry trips canceled this year for mechanical problems alone. Um, That's really an incredible figure when you consider last year, it was only 26 times that mechanical issues canceled the ferries. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why uh, the steamship and other boat lines have to stop their boats. Uh, Weather is certainly one of them, and and it happens from time to time. But mechanical issues like this uh, are really at a crisis point, I think. And many folks on the steamship's board of governors are calling for an emergency meeting. They want to talk about it and figure out exactly what's happening because as you said it was started with the Martha's Vineyard uh, boat but other ferries have gone down as well and you don't you very quickly realize you're on an island when there's no Mm. way to get on or off and uh, it really is a major problem and of course we're we're just on the cusp of the summer season so it's something they want to solve sooner than later. So I'm looking at this piece uh, from the Martha's Vineyard Gazette. There were 870 ferry trips canceled uh, between January and April because of mechanical breakdowns and weather issues. And that's compared with last year where there were 484. I mean, that's a huge increase. And may I say, Paul, we are standing in the doorway of the season, the summer season. So this has got to get addressed, right? It's definitely a major concern. And uh, right now it's been a major concern for folks. I mean, there are a lot of uh, commuters that go back and forth to Martha's Vineyard. There are students 
who go back and forth from Martha's Vineyard, uh, student athletes and and musicians and the like. Uh, I mean, when when you're when you're on the mainland and you travel a couple towns away, it's it's obviously pretty easy. When you're on Martha's Vineyard and want to get a town away, you literally have to get on a boat or a plane. And so it's a major issue. And as you said, on the cusp of the season means that we're about to have tens of thousands of people trying to flood across the Vineyard Sound on those boats. So they need to fix it. Um, and they need to fix it quickly. Uh, it's it's uh, a problem largely with the Martha's Vineyard, but maybe uh, systemic as well. Um, and the boat lines have not had problems like this in many years. Uh, it was uh, maybe 10 years or so ago when the Flying Cloud, one of the fast ferries, um, was breaking down, it seemed like, uh, almost every week, uh, earning it the nickname the Black Cloud. Uh, oh, and, fi- and, fi- and finally, the Steamship Authority took that out of service altogether. So um, that could be the fate for some of the other boat lines. As you mentioned, the vineyard, the Martha's Vineyard had just gone through renovations, uh, and now it's been back in its maintenance port in Fairhaven more times than I think most people want to count. So uh, it's an issue. And uh, the problem, the biggest problem is they really don't know what's uh, I mean, there. It's a series of small things that are all adding up. How do you solve all those small things? Well, that's what they need to do. Well, I can tell you that it's likely that I would probably be on the Martha's Vineyard boat, not <laughs> happy out in the water, seeing where I wanted to go, <laughs> in the distance. So, so I can imagine this. Everybody's working on it because it's just too costly for everybody. The folks, as you say, coming on and off, trying to work or go to school, and then the tourists. That's just too much money going down the drain if you can't get people where they need to go. So I'm thinking of starting a charter service with my 17-foot skiff. Um, yeah. You're we'll laughing, just, we'll but, just, you know, you could probably make some money. Here's, here's my pontoon boat. Here's my pontoon <laughs> right. boat. I got a canoe. I got a canoe. Yeah. So I have to ask a question, though. I see a half-million-dollar price tag, $500,000 price tag, $500,000 price tag. What is that attributed to? Actually, I hate to say this. That doesn't sound like a lot of money. I mean, when you're talking about the number of trips that have failed, you know, the problem with the communication system, the, all these little, little things that we're talking about. I mean, if you divided that up with the number of trips that have been canceled, it doesn't come up to a lot of money. So I'm just trying to figure out, everyone's complaining about that price tag, but I'm looking at what you are losing economically, what you are losing socially, what you are losing in, in sort of tourism by the sort of the message that's being sent. I, I'm kind of curious, if that's what we're talking about, why aren't you making the investment yesterday? Absolutely. And I think the uh, the Board of Governors, which is scheduled to meet this coming week, um, probably will be asking and answering that question fairly quickly because they really do need to solve this right away. Um, with the Flying Cloud a few years ago, it was engine troubles consistently. They mm-hmm. knew what the problem was. With the Martha's Vineyard, it's been engine troubles. It's been sensors. It's been all sorts of things that have caused issues. And, uh, you know, they, they need to they need to get their arms around whether they need a new boat or, or what they need. And uh, you're right. I mean, the money is uh, really, really small potatoes compared to okay, exactly. uh, the, the economic impact uh, and just the life impact. I mean, yeah. people, again, commute every single day, and uh, it's, it's a massive disruption for them. All right. I want to move on up your way, Arnie, because speaking of transportation, uh, New Hampshire just oh. killed the commuter rail study. Wow. Oh, God. And this oh, no, is no, money no, no, no. that they could have. This is money that was available to them to pay for it. 
<laughs> don't get me started. Um, all right. So, all right. We know there's been this big fight because we don't invest in, uh, in, in, in any kind of infrastructure except for roads and bridges. That's it. And then we're on our 10-year plan. It would take us 30 years to get to. There isn't a dime that we attribute really to anything that represents rail or any kind of mass transit. We are pathetic. Let me repeat this. We are pathetic. <laughs> so there's been a big push, especially in Nashville and places like Manchester, where you see a significant number of people that are commuting into Massachusetts. We look at our roads that are basically parking lots, and we keep saying, why don't we have rail? Especially now, think about this. You know, hands-free, you can't talk on your phone, you can't work on your computer, but you're stuck in traffic for two and a half hours. If you had a rail system, think about the added value you could do. It's not just about socialization. You could actually be doing work hours as you're heading into work. So there's so many reasons why, especially given where we're moving as a society, for us to invest in rail. Well, the governor originally said, no, I don't believe in rail. Then he was starting to sort of genuflect to Amazon and trying to figure out how he could market New Hampshire to Amazon. We can't give you money, but we might actually think about a railroad. So while Amazon was sort of a fiction for a while, uh, he suddenly put $4 million into the budget, which was all going to be paid for by the feds, to study the idea of bringing rail to New Hampshire. As soon as Amazon said, au revoir, we're not looking at you, guess what? The $4 million disappeared. People tried to put it, make sure it was put back in the budget. And then the Senate said there was no way. They won't even take the money. The money is being given to them to study it, but we are putting our head into the sand. We are not welcoming young people. We are not we're refusing to look at public transportation. You know, rail, I think, is really an opportunity for the future. And as we see more and more young people wanting to live in a more urban area, but not wanting to own a car, in part because they're so overloaded with student debt, um, you would think that this would be the kind of thing that you would want to at least begin to consider. But don't ask, don't tell, don't question, don't investigate. We would rather not even think about this, in part because we don't have the cash to even fix our roads. And if we do anything with rail, it will mean that we have to find some kind of an additional revenue source if it doesn't pay for itself. But in the long run, it might pay for itself if it welcomes people into this state, especially young people, which we so desperately need, given our aging demographic. So um, sorry, I wish my name was Amazon. Well, I was going to have a different story right about now. Yeah, well, first of all, the commuter rail was going to pay for potentially or consider the viability of the rail expansion from Boston to Manchester, which is, you know, talk about commuting. You know, that would be just ideal, uh, ideal, really just a a lifeline for so many people. And you just raised the second thing, which I'm going to throw to Philip, which is that when the moment that it may have been that Amazon was considering building their second headquarters there, then everybody's all in favor of the study because Amazon, of course, is not coming in there with all their young workforce with no way for them to get back and forth. So, Philip, weigh in on not only losing Amazon, but losing the vision that uh, Amazon, the potential of an Amazon headquarters brought to them in the moment. Well, one thing I can say about the Amazon uh, situation sweepstakes, which Rhode Island certainly participated in, and I even wrote an op-ed about it for WGBH because Rhode Island was basically offering Amazon to come build gigantic skyscrapers uh, perfectly symbolically surrounding our state house. That never happened. Uh, all of which is to say, I think local folks could learn a lot about their local officials simply by how they approach that Amazon situation. Yes. My response to this, um, there's a little bit of, I am generally pro-rail, but there's a little bit of a cautionary tale from Rhode Island, which I think I've brought up before on this show, which is that a few years ago, uh, we locally in the federal government 
spent a whole bunch of money, tens of millions of dollars, to extend Massachusetts commuter rail service down to the southern part of Rhode Island, uh, Wickford in particular, um, all on the promise that, you know, this was going to be widely used. It was going to be an economic boon. These people in southern Rhode Island could commute to Boston. And the crowds never really materialized. It was supposed to be an if-you-build-it-they-will-come situation. But last summer, the Boston Globe reported, quote, the station, which opened in 2012, picks up about 300 riders a day, a far cry from a 1995 projection of nearly 3,400 daily riders. Mm. Around that time, there was a Providence Journal article with the headline, The Debt Expressed, Little-Used Wickford Providence Train Station is $10 million in the hole. Now, I know what's going on in New Hampshire is just a question about whether to study whether this is viable, and I fully support that. And I don't know if this Providence-Wickford-Boston situation is necessarily directly applicable to New Hampshire. But all I'm saying is that sometimes these big promises about what rail uh, will bring don't always come to pass. But, you know, we're still waiting to see what happens in Wickford, although the the initial kind of boom has not materialized. Well, Paul, I'm going to engage you in this because there was a time when there was a train going between the greater Boston area down to Hyannis and nothing was happening. And then they brought it back as a pilot just to see. I know this is not quite the same. This would be much smaller kind of project than this, uh, the one in New Hampshire. But the bottom line is, you you know, you can't have enough routes going back and forth on that train. People are all over it. <laughs> they had to extend the season. So sometimes I think it's a timing situation as well. And with exactly. regard to people, as Arnie was saying, really trying to reduce their car usage and I, I think there is more interest. There will be more interest and more pickup, even in that space, if I may predict. What do you say, Paul? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, I mean, first of all, the train to the Cape is is really a tourist train. I mean, these are people who aren't commuting back and forth, and and yet, like you said, um, it, it's been wildly successful. They just keep bringing it back every season because it's it's been a boom. Folks down here would love to have uh, a rail uh, so they could commute into Boston rather than taking the buses or driving up Route 3. Um, same with the South Coast, for that matter. They they consider it, you know, a, a potential lifeline for them. So when you hear something about like this in, in New Hampshire, you do have to feel it, it's short-sighted, um, except this. I think we can save them the $400,000 study. All you need to do is drive on 93 <laughs> or the Everett Turnpike yeah. yes. in the morning or in the Thank afternoon. You. you don't have to build it for them to come. They're already on the road commuting back and forth. This is about getting them off the road and into uh, a, a mass transit situation, which, of course, is a national priority. And, and in terms of fixing the roads in that area, of course, you do have to do that. But one way to fix it is to get cars off of the roads, and this is something that would clear do it. And, and one last point, though, Kelly. We also have an airport in, the, in Manchester, and we can get a lot of people that come in that would love to be able to go from the airport right down into Boston, right down into Massachusetts, so it takes some of the pressure off of Logan. There's that opportunity as well. And the other thing is, when you start doing the cost-benefit analysis of parking, traveling, time, you know, uh, billable hours you could do on a train, all those kinds of things, I mean, people aren't stupid. People do the math. You know, there may be a convenience to a car, but right now that convenience is becoming more of a headache. And I really do think timing is absolutely appropriate. And the timing is now. And it's unfortunate that we have a governor that doesn't quite grasp that. And I would say, just to underscore something else you said, uh, the millennial population and younger, many of them do not have cars. So they are looking for uh, places, rather, where they can get to work, 
have good work and get back and forth on various forms of public transportation. So I think, Philip, I hear your concern and I, I know your story there, but I bet you if we, in a few years, I just think those numbers are going to go up because of so many people putting the car in the garage or never owning one. Yeah, all I'll say is if they end up spending that $4 million, take a few of those dollars and, and make a research trip to Rhode Island and just ask some questions here about what might be learned promise. from, from yeah. what promise. we did. I yeah. promise. We'll see the positives and the negatives. Right. Arnie's on her yeah. way. All right. Yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> bags are packed. My bags are packed. My car is ready. <laughs> well, uh, there is a representative, uh, Philip, in um, Rhode Island who would like a few people to pack their bags and come sure. to Rhode Island, and he's willing to pay them to come. Um $10,000 may be as high as he'd like to get some new residents to Rhode Island. And there is a noble reason they want to save the congressional seat. Please explain. Yeah, so for the last couple of years in Rhode Island, there's been a lot of talk about the danger that we may lose one of our two congressional seats here. Um, for example, uh, earlier or last December, WPRI published an article with the headline, RI is now within 157 residents of losing a U.S. House seat, expert warns. So in the current legislative session in the Rhode Island State House of Representatives, a representative named Carlos Tabone has uh, submitted a potential solution to this. Um, as the Providence Journal reports, it's called the Qualified Family Migration to Rhode Island Act. Uh, which would, according to the journal, if passed, dangle cash, $833 per month, up to $10,000, to middle-class American families willing to become Rhode Islanders for a year. Migrants from any state in the country would would be eligible as long as they bring a family of at least three with a household income of $100,000 per year or more. Um, so it, I don't know whether this uh, law has gained any traction. I haven't heard anything about it since it kind of made news when it was first introduced. But as we know, a lot of the action in the legislature uh, happens at the very end of the session around June, early July. Um, it seems to me this is kind of a long shot. But if nothing else, it does illustrate the kind of urgency that we're feeling here, especially with the census ramping up about what happens if we lose this congressional seat. There was an interesting quote from Tabone uh, to the journal in which he said, because let's get them here, meaning these people, and get them counted because the money we would need to keep them here is nothing compared to the money we would lose if we lose our seat. So I'll, I'll be keeping oh an eye God. on this for sure. I think this is so interesting, Arnie, because, you know, we just <laughs> talked about uh, cities and towns going after Amazon. We're willing to spend all kinds of money to get corporations in. Hey, spend a little money and get some residents. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to okay. pop this balloon because okay. here's what I did. African Americans are the only U.S. racial group earning less than in 2000. So let's talk about who he wants to invite. Well, People who are mm. making over $100,000 a year. So let's talk about who that looks like. Oh, that looks like Asian Americans and white Americans. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like Hispanics and it doesn't look like blacks. Mm -hmm. So I understand that you use an economic number to sound generic, but that economic number is very interesting because that economic number also has an attachment to race. And I was mm -hmm. look, I was so appalled at this. And let me tell you why I'm appalled, because I'll give you the reverse story. In New Hampshire years ago, we used to, we don't provide services. We're cheap. Let me repeat this. <laughs> we are cheap. Rich and cheap. So what would happen is people 
would come to the local welfare office looking for support, and it was not uncommon to hear about a local welfare officer giving them a ticket to Boston and saying, if you want benefits, go to Massachusetts. We don't provide benefits here, okay? (laughs) This is the reverse of what exactly he is doing with that $100,000 price ticket. If you are rich and you are white, show up in Rhode Island. I understand he put a price tag on it, but look at who that price tag would apply to. The the, The average income of a black family in America is $39,000. The average income of an Asian American family in America is $81,000. How many people do you think could reach that $100,000 if they're black versus if they're Asian American or white? So these are, this is a story that made me shake. I understand Mm. he wants more people, but don't use that number. Because what does that number say? That number tells the people who can't come and aren't encouraged to come. Who needs the $1,000 a month is not someone who's making $100,000 a year, but someone that's making $40,000 a year that probably will add more to your economy maybe in some ways because they will actually make a contribution that is so important in every aspect of what happens in Rhode Island life. All right, I'll get off my high horse. Well, that's a fine point, I <laughs> no, have you, to say. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point. You should come <laughs> testify against Oh, my against God, the bill. was I furious. Oh. <laughs> um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is a very ramped up Arnie Arneson of WNHN's <laughs> The Attitude Sorry, with Arnie Arneson, <laughs> Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, <laughs> Rhode Island, and Paul Pronovo, news editor of the Cape Cod Times, and we're discussing regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Paul, you weigh in. What do you think about the $100,000 offer? What if it worked? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, where would this money come from? I don't know. Let, let's add it up. $300 million. So, so the, the money would be $10,000. It wouldn't be $100,000. The $100,000 is the eligibility bar. Um, and it would be up to 30,000 people. So it, is, is 30,000 times 10,300 million? Or is that... No, no. That, but, that's the cap but, of the people they would allow. But you can't show up without the hundred thousand dollar income. Right. It's but it, it's it's crazy money, and and we do stories about all our regions, and they're looking for money here and there, and and, and the philosophy I get is is uh, an understandable one. You don't want to lose your seat because of all that goes with that. But I just can't imagine this getting any traction because where would the money come from? Good point. Well, all and very good all, points. We're all, uh, perhaps for the rest of my life, still stinging from the fact that we gave Kurt Schilling $75 million, which went up in smoke and left us on the hook. So, And, the, uh, and you well, all said you knew there. where that money was coming from. So, hey. A rich white guy. A rich white guy. Let exactly. me repeat. All right. Sorry. That's yeah, true. All right. Well, yep. speaking of money, uh, Paul, down your way, Barnstable is uh, netting 500 k but uh, in a different way. They're <laughs> not wooing residents with money. They're from foreclosed property sales. Uh, talk about why this is important. Well, it's interesting because this is something um, I think every city and town could do, and very few um, take the time and the effort to to pull it off. Um, Basically, Barnstable went and collected all of abandoned properties, little slices of land, many of them unbuildable, um, that basically had fallen off the tax rolls altogether. And they, they bundled them up and they said, I got an idea. We, we've now taken them, 
the, the land long ago uh, because of tax liens. Um, let's auction the land off and see what we can make. And well, 22 properties, as you said, Callie, could make them about half a million dollars uh, from, from the winning bids uh, last month. So um, that's good news for the town. And then more good news is now that the properties have been bought and assumed by uh, folks, um, it's going to put it back on the tax rolls. So that could generate collectively in the ballpark of about $10,000 a year, uh, $10,000 more dollars a year than they were making uh, as the land just sat there. So uh, really smart. It'll be interesting to see what comes of the land. Uh, mm. I think a lot of butters purchased uh, little slices next to them to expand their footprint a little bit. Um, others, including a town councilor in Barnstable, bought a couple properties, and uh, maybe they're not buildable, but maybe he could put, uh, with, with some zoning forgiveness, uh, affordable uh, units in there. So uh, an interesting thing, and again, I think any town could do this, but it, it would take uh, a little time and attention to do it, and, and uh, good for Barnstable for, for pulling it off. So when you say not buildable, how, how is it that you could possibly build affordable housing if it's not built? I don't know what not buildable means. It, well, so it all depends on the size and the location of the property. So if, if uh, you know, they're... they're Exactly. So, uh, but if the town zoning department, if, if it's a, uh, I don't even know the size, but let's say it's half an acre and you're not supposed to be able to build on that. If the town gave forgiveness to have a cluster zoning in a small lot, then it could become buildable. So, but it's a risk on the, on the behalf of the people who bid on these, because as of now, um, most of them are not buildable. Um, but they could be converted, at least some of them, certainly not all of them. Some of them are in wetlands and things like that where you definitely aren't building. So, Kelly, I used to do real estate, and one of the really good, fun things about this idea was a lot of abutters bought the property. Am I right, Paul? Yes, And what exactly. that means is, is that because now they could, they've done like a property line adjustment, so their half acre may now become three quarters of an acre. Even though they may not decide to build on that other quarter acre, suddenly their property is enhanced in value, which means you can collect more property taxes. They've taken down a blighted piece of property next to them, so it enhances the property value of their home. So these abutters really see an interest in what they were able to do because it really does enhance what their ownership interest is now. And that also means that there's a potential rise in property taxes. Mm. So that's useful. And if we do do a property line adjustment and they can get some zoning forgiveness, they may suddenly have a compilation of property that they could actually build a new structure. Without right. that point thirty six, they couldn't build a new structure. With that point thirty six, they now have enough of a footprint that they could do it. So there's really, it's kind of very elastic, but in that sense, that gives people options that they didn't have before until the foreclosure. Now, does it make sense for somebody who, let's say, is just an investor to buy up little tiny strips and just sit there with it for a while to see <laughs> if anything happens? I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> it might, be a little, might be a little bit Call of a Donald risk. Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, because you, the pro I don't need to tell you all, the property down um, uh, the, the Cape is expensive and getting more so. Of course. So even if you have a sliver and you own it, maybe somebody buys the property and didn't take the abutting piece. And then the next owner says, well, why can't I have that piece? Well, you can if you want to buy it from me. Or a developer could throw it into, or a developer could throw it into the mix as uh, a Good mitigation point. factor, which happens a lot right. when you're trying to when you're trying exactly. to build. You have to come up with something, you know, maybe it's open space or wetlands that's sort of a trade off for what you're trying to build. Um, so you know, there are a lot of different uses for it, um, even if you can't put up a, a, a brand new cape on the property. Uh, but bottom but, line, but this is a, this is a, a good thing for Barnstable. Yes, really smart thing, and I'm sure a lot of communities around, uh, you know, the neighboring communities are looking at it saying, hmm, we ought to go do this too.
Right. Not to be too much of a downer, but when I read this story, no, I did have one question. No, you are Debbie Downer today, Philip. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Well, it's I just job. had a question. <laughs> I'm a journalist, A, so it's my <laughs> job to be a downer sometimes. But B, you know, every foreclosure, there's a story there. And I wanted to know, mm. I mean, this is wonderful for the for the town, but I want, and certainly what we know from the financial crisis is when foreclosures happen, it's certainly not always the fault of the people, you know, whose whose home it was. So exactly. I did read this story and wonder, well, who were the people, you know, maybe they were just homes that were vacant or abandoned for a long time, but maybe they weren't. Maybe these were maybe people were who subprime. had been sold. Well, right, just, exactly. So I did want just, to hear a little to, bit. Yeah. Sorry, Phil. Uh, just to, just to uh, clarify, these are not, these were small slivers, you know, 0.38 acres of, of land, small, that, that didn't have homes on them. The Barnstable is also, and, and other uh, communities on the Cape have dealt with uh, sort of absentee landlords and properties that um, have either been abandoned completely or effectively abandoned. Those fall in an entirely different category than these. These were little pockets of land, little freckles almost on, on the map uh, gotcha. that, that they were like, well, there's, and people just gave it away because Really, there was nothing they could do with it, so they just so there's, over there's time. Not much of a downer angle here, is what you're saying. No, <laughs> yeah. no, there probably is. <laughs> well, and I'm reminded that uh, one of my landladies from Martha's Vineyard, I stayed with forever. Uh, she and her family owned an alley off of the main street in Oak Bluffs. Who would have thought? <laughs> and and it, they yeah. just owned it for years, and then eventually they sold it to somebody. But I mean, it wasn't couldn't do much with it, but still, they owned it anyway. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our regional roundtable, Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, and Paul Pronovo. And we're talking about the New England stories you may have missed this week. So, Arnie, um, this bill got shot down again, but narrowly. School vouchers were, it seemed, a hot property in discussion in New Hampshire. Okay. Well, we have the equivalent of Betsy DeVos as our commissioner of education. His name is Frank Edelblut. And Frank Edelblut and Chris Sununu are holding hands as our governor. And the idea is they want to give people choice in public education. So what they came up with was this concept of the voucher slash scholarship. And therefore, what would happen is, is that they could drain public dollars out of public schools, run it through the scholarship money, and then you could be able to access the scholarship to pay for homeschooling, private school or sit down, everyone, parochial schools. So um, they, this was something the governor really wanted. This is something the Commissioner of Education wanted because anything that would drain money out of public education is something that was crucial. And not only would you drain money out of public schools, but then you would ultimately see a rise in property taxes. The bill had been killed. Listen to this, everyone three times in the House. It was then re-emerged in the Senate, attached to a non-related bill, sent back over, and the House had to kill it another time, a fourth time. I call this the vampire education bill. And uh, the governor really wanted it, so he was twisting arms to make sure that this bill that would bring about an increase in property taxes and drain significant dollars out of public education, what ultimately happened. And what was so frightening about what the Senate did was this money, the scholarship money, was supposed to go to low-income people. Well, in their attempt to sort of sweeten the pot, the Senate had actually expanded the voucher bill. So instead of only 38,000 low-income students being able to apply for the scholarships, it jumped to 172,000 students who could now 
now potentially get this money. That meant that the increased potential in seeing monies drained out of public educational systems around the state had just jumped enormously. Nobody wanted it that was a teacher. Nobody wanted it that was a superintendent. Nobody wanted it that valued public education because in an interesting way, it was kind of laundering public dollars to go to things like parochial schools. And technically, we have a separation of church and state. But by putting the scholarship as sort of the intervener, they were able to then say the money would go to the scholarship, and then the parents could make their choices. But it, it was killed. narrowly... It got killed. It got killed. But, but it, was, it was vibrant there for a while. It was a vibrant... Well, there's a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. tremendous pressure by the governor. He sees this as one of the most important bills that he wanted to sponsor, and therefore he was putting pressure on a lot of Republicans. But one of the most conservative Republicans in the New Hampshire legislature, a guy named Neil Kirk, who has really been the handmaiden for the conservatives for decades, he stood up and said, this is going to raise your property taxes. Mm-hmm. This is going to raise your property taxes. I cannot and will not support it. And I think that made it very hard for the governor because Neil Kirk has such an incredible reputation as being an amazing fiscal hawk. Wow. Arnie, you called it the vampire bill. Is it now dead? Did they put the, as the of golden Thursday, spike through it? As wait, wait, as if, right, no, I just, as of, as of Thursday of this week, it came back and it was killed, I believe, by like 173 to 168. So um, they put, you know, this time we hope it's a stab in the heart and it's over, but the legislative session isn't over. And you know what? There are other bills it could be attached to. Wow. So God knows what could happen. I suspect at this point it's over. Wow. All right. Uh, let me move on up. Philip, unless you had something deep you wanted to add to that. No, I was just going to add that, um, you know, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, you know, now the, the country's most prominent proponent of school choice, had a golden opportunity to preach the gospel of school choice on 60 Minutes recently with Leslie Stahl interviewing right. her. And by many accounts, it did not go well. Um, I'll just leave it there. Um, and people can, I highly recommend that profile uh, of, of Betsy DeVos by Leslie Stahl at 60 Minutes. It's well worth a watch regardless of where you fall on this. Right. So, um, Paul, uh, this is a kind of a sad um, story about um, the officer who was killed in that line of duty down there and his dog. And But it's also a, just an interesting uh, feature story. And I wonder if you'd just tell us about the canine dog, Nero. Sure. Um, I think uh, most people around New England are probably familiar with a terrible incident that happened a month ago now here on the Cape where uh, a police officer was one of several uh, attempting to serve a warrant and uh, he was uh, shot and killed in the line of duty. Sergeant Sean Gannon, uh, it was a, a story that really rocked the community as you can imagine. Um, the Cape is a pretty small town place, uh, especially in the off season, and people all know each other. And 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 uh, and Sean Gannon was very uh, well regarded, not only in the police community but in the community in general. And uh, so it was really uh, quite quite an earth shaking moment. Sergeant Gannon was a canine officer, and his dog was with him during the search. Nero uh, and Nero also had been shot. Um, but was uh, he survived his wounds and uh, you know a pretty extraordinary surgery that took place to uh, to save his life and uh, one of the former um, canine handlers in fact someone who had trained Nero before he was handed over to Sean for uh, for duty um, 
you know, went to the scene as soon as he heard about this and basically didn't leave Nero's side for days and days, slept with him uh, in the veterinary hospital on the floor on a blanket. And uh, uh, it's been such a sad story for a month, and yet, you know, people felt somewhat rejuvenated when Nero was able to make a public appearance uh, last week. And... Um, uh, he's really been helping uh, boost the spirits of, of the police officers uh, here in the community, but also the community in general. Uh, just to give you an example of how, how much interest we ran uh, a, a Facebook Live video when Nero was uh, shown uh, to the community, and uh, I think we had 100,000 views on it in just a you know couple hours. So people were very, very interested in, in hearing about Nero. And... Uh, Will he go back into service? Probably not. It's a maybe, but, but probably not. Um, but just the fact that he survived, I think, is uh, is making feel uh, making people feel just a little better. It's a nice uh, a living tribute uh, to the officer. So just wanted you can, to mention. Can I that. just add one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, when I clicked on this story, I was stopped in my tracks by the lead photograph from the Cape Cod Times. So I want to give a shout out to Steve Heaslip. It's a photo of that trainer you mentioned, Paul. Um, or I think that's who you're, uh, Peter McClelland, um, yep, with his arms him. around the dog. And it's such a mournful, uh, moving photo. And, you know, I was just at the Rhode Island Press Association Awards. Many of the awards go to photography. We often kind of take news photography for granted. But uh, that looks like an award-winning photo to me. It's just incredibly moving. I encourage people to, to check it out. And it's also Thank a reminder you. that those uh, animals are actually in service uh, with the officers. And so, so I thank you all for joining me. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Kelly. Arnie Arneson is host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Paul Pronovo is the news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, who is the modern mom? And do the old stereotypes apply? We celebrate Mother's Day with moms from the greater Boston area who blog about their experiences and aim to help other moms cope with the day-to-day realities of motherhood. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. In the 1950s, TV's Donna Reed seemed to be the epitome of successful motherhood. But it's fair to say that today's mothers don't aspire to that image. Whether working full-time or choosing to stay at home, modern moms are pushing aside society's expectations and reframing their roles for these turbulent times. In celebration of Mother's Day, we've invited some Boston mommy bloggers to join me here in the studio. So here with me are Alexandra Elizabeth. Her blog is called Making Motherhood Visible. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Also with me, Leslie Pearlson. Her blog is called B Plus Boston. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's just jump right in. Why did you start writing your blog, Alexandra? So I started writing my blog about eight years ago. I was a young mom in my 20s, and I had a young daughter and really didn't see... um, motherhood, the motherhood that I was living and breathing every day portrayed positively in society and in the media. And I really wanted a space, a safe space that I could talk about all that I was going through as a young mom, as a mom of color um, on the internet and to be able to connect with, with other, with other folks. Leslie? 
Uh, so when I had my son about four and a half years ago, my first son, uh, there was a, an organization in Boston that was covering uh, all sorts of new moms things. And it went under uh, right when I was signed up for my new moms class. And so I had no resources. I didn't know what to do. There was no user manual. And um, I'm an attorney by training. And so I researched as much as I could. <laughs> and so I put all that research online for others to find it. And then I also kind of spun out the blog after that to similarly just kind of talk about the experiences. And uh, my blog is a B plus Boston, and it is kind of very much an open and honest, uh, not perfect uh, motherhood approach. And that's very important to you in terms of your philosophy, because it could be A plus, but you chose B plus for a reason. <laughs> that's correct. Yes. <laughs> hey, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, uh, my husband and I always joke that we are B plus people. I think there's uh, a lot of work that goes into getting from that B plus to the A plus. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people call it the 80-20 rule. 20% of the work will get you 80% of the distance, and that extra 20% will take you 80% of the work. And so I really ascribe to B plus is good enough. And I think you can kind of, uh, at least I feel that I am a better, more present parent trying not to be perfect. And I give more attention that way. And, you know, my house is a mess because of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm mostly okay with that. So Alexander, when you talked about making um, motherhood visible or and making your kind of motherhood visible is really what you meant. Um, how does that play out for you as you write about it? Yeah, I, similar to Leslie, you know, I don't hold back talking about the nitty gritty, the dirty mess that motherhood is, um, that it can be. And I think it's important for other moms, especially now in an age where I think moms are realizing that they don't have to do it all, that they don't have to subscribe to this idea of um, needing to be kind of the super mom. I very much share openly and honestly and candidly about the real struggles of motherhood and parenthood that aren't often portrayed in media, that aren't often portrayed in society. And I think in doing so, I've helped open doors for mothers, for parents to realize that they don't have to subscribe to this notion that motherhood is perfect, that motherhood is A+, plus, you know, that they are and should be free to be authentic, to be on the journey of motherhood that they want to be and not what anyone else thinks they should be on. Well, that seems to be a trend across a lot of modern moms. We found this interesting clip. It's from a vlog, I guess you'd call it, uh, a video blog called Cat and Nats. It's one of the many YouTube videos that they post every Friday as hashtag Mom Truths Friday. And in this video, they talk about all the things that no one ever tells you about when having a baby. No one ever tells you that you can love something so much, but also hate the moment so much. You're in love with that thing, but it's causing you so much distress and so much anxiety and so much work that you're like, <gasps> it's like the parallels of parallel universes colliding every day. Nobody tells you that you're gonna feel lonely even though there's always somebody yeah. with you. Nobody tells you that you're mm -hmm. gonna dread when the sun goes down because mm -hmm. you're gonna be all alone. No one ever tells you that every single mom is gonna do it different. And so you'll never really know if you're doing it right at all. So that's from Cat and Nat's hashtag Mom Truths Friday from their YouTube videos. I, I think both of you were relating to that as you as you heard it, right? Um, they have much more graphic detail of what no one ever tells you, by the way, in case other moms want to check that out. Uh, but I thought that was a, a safe to put out there because it seemed to underscore what, what you're saying is that it, this seems to be a moment where folks like yourselves are feeling very good about saying, you know, I'm not trying to be anything more than what I am and what I can bring to the table. I wonder if your getting to where you are now was influenced by how you were mothered. Alexandra? 
Um, yeah, I unfortunately didn't grow up with a very supportive mom in our household and spent my time alone a lot. And I think, therefore, I very much seek to build community. I very much want all mothers to feel supported. You know, I'm starting my training to be a doula. I'm really interested in baby wearing. You know, I want all types of mothers to find the support that they need where they are. That's super, super important to me. Explain what a doula is while we're here. Sure. A doula is an emotional birth support worker. So not a midwife. She's not, or he. (laughs) They're not medically trained. They are really to support mothers during birth. That's my guest, Alexandra Elizabeth, and her blog is called Making Motherhood Visible. Over to you, Leslie. How you were mother, did that influence how you think about motherhood now? Uh, certainly. I, I can't imagine it didn't. Mm-hmm. I um, I had a mom who was full-time stay-at-home, and I talk with her at length uh, more just about how our choices now are different, um, the options that we have. She was full-time because she said, you know, there was no option for reliable daycare for her at the time. There was no Instacart. There was no grocery delivery. There was no Amazon. I have all of those resources at my fingertips, and so I think I, am, uh, I have a lot of tools to be a working mom as well. I work four days a week week uh, and one day at home. And so I think that flexible work schedule wasn't available either. Um, But my mom was a fabulous example. And uh, she also says a lot of the things that she did uh, for Christmas, for example, that was her Super Bowl. She always (laughs) said. (laughs) So, you know, we have different approaches because I just kind of see it. And I am so admirable. I I admire her so much and what she put into it. But I kind of look at it and go, if I don't have to make that choice and make that (laughs) sacrifice, I'm going to do something different. So. Now, do you feel any of the tension that has sometimes uh, appeared to be ongoing between working moms and stay-at-home moms? Is that pretty much going away, I guess is the best way to put it? Or if, it's, if or has it subsided quite a bit because there are folks like yourself saying, you know what, I'm just not constrained by anybody's image of what I do. So therefore, your criticism of who I am as a mother really doesn't impact me? Or am I just wrong on that? No, I think it's it seems to be going away. I would say that um, I've had this conversation with lots of different friends, too, and I feel like the guilt that's there is almost internalized. I can't imagine one of my friends saying to somebody else, you know, do you think that your baby is in the best care in a stranger's hands? Like those conversations are not happening externally. But I think um, a lot of working moms might say that to themselves or wonder or or worry that somebody else is thinking it when in reality they probably aren't. I think uh, everybody kind of perceives motherhood can be judged a lot more just because we are in the age of internet and there are, you know, you put anything online and everyone's going to have an opinion about it. And I think that has been the calculus that's changed a little bit. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guests are Leslie Perlson. You just heard her. Her blog is B Plus Boston. Also with me is Alexandra Elizabeth, whose blog is Making Motherhood Visible. Do you feel less tension around the issue? Now, a lot of women of color have always felt like I had to work, so this was not something I was going to deal with. But I wonder if you felt that at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I've, I've held a full-time job since I was 15. Um, not by choice, but because I had to, that's what I had to do to survive, to buy food. You know, I've been very independent from a very young age. I didn't have a choice in doing so. And I've been on the side of being a working mom, a working full-time mom, and now to being a stay-at-home mom. 
And they're both equally really, really hard. And um, what I see now is just that I think a lot of moms um, are finding places to talk about their fears and frustrations versus I think years ago when I had my daughter 12 years ago, there really wasn't a place or community to kind of talk about the struggles of being a working mom. I was a working mom and also going to school full time. So I think the guilt is slowly going away. And it's it's so much is, a, you know, we internalize it. But I'm really excited that moms now are being more mindful of the fact that they need to take more time to be for self-care and to really kind of analyze what they're telling themselves of what they're internalizing and figuring out kind of what goes and what stays. Because at the end of the day, your mental sanity is, is so important. So you're both writing blogs, which means you're not just in communication with yourself, you're having outreach. And I'm wondering, what are the kinds of questions or comments that you are most familiar with that seem to come to you quite a bit? Or do they change? Leslie? The, I think based off of how I kind of set up my my website and the blog, I get a lot of questions about resources. I think it's new parents and it's people that are moving to Boston for the first time. There's really no manual and there's no handbook, but there are so many resources in our community that people can access. And I think most of the questions that I get are about that. And so I like to think of the page as kind of a jumping off point of, you know, here are the communities, here are the organizations. And I agree, it's so important to, you know, even in our modern day, it takes a village. And our village has changed a bit, but it's it's all there and, and available. And so that's mostly what I see people concerned with. Is there one blog post that received a particular amount of attention? And what was it, if that's the case? That, I think, was probably the very first blog that I wrote, which is how I got the name of B+, and what it means to be able to be plus. And um, I took it partially from a, um, a Harvard professor, a tenure professor, and she talks a lot about being a whole, the best whole person she can be. Um, I think we are people that are single-mindedly devoted to being the best lawyer or the best professor or the best parent. Um, you know, they're the ones, not that that's all they do, but they are single-mindedly focused on that. Um, but I think a lot of us wear a ton of different hats. And so um, that this idea of being the best whole person, uh, it can make you a little bit more forgiving when you fail in one aspect of your life as well. Um, and so that was something that I think just really resonated with people. And that's Leslie Pearlson, and her blog is B Plus Boston. Over to you, Alexandra Elizabeth, whose blog is Making Motherhood Visible. The thing that you've written, the blog post, it's gotten quite a bit of response that you can remember. And, and what was it? So I, you know, I blog about lifestyles, blog about parenting. I also blog about culture and women's issues. And one issue that I blog about very openly is mental illness and the hope that we as a community can rally behind people who are struggling with mental illness. And I wrote a post called I'm Ugly. And I took a picture. I put makeup on and then I had my partner write on my face with eyeliner all of the things I tell myself on a daily basis that I'm ugly, that I'm fat, that I'm stupid, that I'm not good enough. And then I start crying. And mm -hmm. I said, this is the perfect time to take a photo. So I took a photo of, of myself in this very unhappy state because it's very easy for me to, on a daily basis, kind of think I'm doing a good job, but also like, oh my gosh, Alex, you haven't done X, Y, Z. The laundry's been folded. Oh gosh, like you're, there's so many things that on a day-to-day -day basis, I feel like I'm doing wrong. But at the end of the day, your kids don't notice that. And so I took this time to stop and reflect and realize how detrimental this negative self-talk is. And the support I received was amazing. One, you don't get a lot of people who are doing this very like open, raw mm -hmm. kind of posting, which is very important for me in my blog. 
but also a realization of how normal these trains of thoughts can be for mm-hmm. us as women. So here's a question. I always knew from, I would say, teenagehood that I had absolutely no interest in motherhood. I mean, none. <laughs> I like kids. I find them very, I'm somebody's, many people's faux aunts. <laughs> I have real <laughs> nep- niece and nephew who I adore. But the thought of birthing and raising, and I had this conversation with my mom who's long gone, and she said, oh, you'd be a great mom. And I said, I realize this is a lifetime job. I am so wholly uninterested. (laughs) So I'm always curious about folks like yourselves who, you know, committed and jumped right in. Like what, what made you want to be a mom, Leslie? That's a great question. And, you know, I've certainly thought to myself, did I make the right decision? And in fact, I had a wonderful doula post-birth who said to me at week six, if you haven't thought in this moment, you might have made a mistake. You're lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I found that was comforting. Um, I, I I think I always knew that I wanted, I always babysat, I always nannied, always really enjoyed kids. I also am very fond of saying that young children are the necessary evil for the adult family I want to have. <laughs> okay. um, and so I think I have a little bit of uh, levity about that. But I, I also am mindful of the fact that I love parenting and I have really, you know, as much as I joke about it, I love being a mom. It's the job that I, you know, most proud of and feel uh, most, I don't know, most who I am. But I also um, think that it's so good because it's so hard. I wrote a bollock post about this as well, which is that, you know, all of the things that you are most proud of in your life, whether it's professionally or academically or personally, those are the things, you know, that you reflect back on that are probably very hard. They involved a lot of work and a lot of practice. And, you know, early morning rehearsals for me, I think of when I did choir back in the day or, you know, that trial team that I was on until three o'clock in the morning. Uh, that's the things that I remember. And parenting fits squarely in that for me. It's, uh, it's definitely if it were easy, I wouldn't remember it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so same question to you, Alexandra. Why? I, unlike Leslie, never thought I was going to be a mom. Um, I thought I was too silly. I thought I was too selfish. And then I found myself pregnant at 19 with my daughter. And I was like, this is going to be the worst thing of my life. What am I going to do? I have no support. And, you know, the in the moment she was born, you know, life changes. And then your priorities change. And I just decided, you know, regardless of everything that was happening externally, regardless of, you know, her dad not being around, um, that I was going to make the best of this situation. And it's been such a learning experience as (laughs) parenthood is through the good, through the bad. And she's 12 now. And, you know, we are going through a lot of different, different experiences, (laughs) Um, equally challenging, but equally amazing. And the the woman that she's growing up to be is um, it's beautiful to to be able to support her in this journey has been, you know, something I never, a journey I'd never thought I'd be on, um, but one that I would never, ever trade for anything. Hmm. So what about this um, mother's guilt we hear so much about, um, which I kind of firmly believe is is tied to some gender bias, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm with you. Me. Okay. <laughs> but I wonder if you, because you all seem, you know, really self-aware about making sure you get it all out about what the real deal is. So are you able to throw that off, that guilt that I hear a lot of mothers say just plagues them day in, day out, no matter what choices they're making? Alexandra. 
I don't know. You know, I, I saw on Facebook the other day, it was a, a woman, a, a fellow blogger. She had went around town and was asking men, hey, how do you how do you juggle being a being working full time and being a dad? And they were flabbergasted. They had never been asked this question. While as moms, we are asked this question every single like all the time. And I think through blogging, through building communities, I've done a really good job of being self-aware and of kind of minimizing the guilt, but it's there. Mm. I don't know, honestly, how to fully get rid of it. I'm not sure if I ever will. Um, I think it's super important to continually kind of check in with yourself and understand kind of why certain things get under your skin more. Yeah, it's there. But I think, again, finding communities in which you don't feel alienated, in which people are going to say, yeah, you had a bad day. You're still a great mom. This constant reassurance, I think, is so important and has been really important for me as a, as a mom. How about you, Leslie? Yeah, I think my uh, my best coping mechanism, because I don't think it ever goes away, but my best coping mechanism generally is uh, to try to look at the positive of anything. Um, I, I read it once on a like a dieting blog, and it was like, <laughs> you know, when you eat that cookie, don't think, oh, I failed my diet. Think, I had a really great, delicious cookie. Or mm-hmm. if you deprive yourself of it, you know, say, good for me. You know, so always kind of in that positive mindset and in that ilk on the mom guilt piece and working, I always tell myself that I... I am setting a great example of what a powerful, successful woman looks like. And I am really surprised actually having two boys, how much more of a, I guess I've always been a feminist, but I think that the next wave of feminism is definitely going to be coming from men. Um, and so to raise feminist boys is so important to me. And so I, I tell myself every day, I'm like, they need to see a, a you know, a powerful, uh, a litigator, no less, uh, in their mom. And so that's kind of how I, 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 I address it. But at the same time, I think we're hardwired to want to be with our young. Um, I think that's it. And I think it's just a more biological tie than men. I don't know, not to be too gender normative. But you know, at the end of the day, I think there's there's something to it. But yeah, I was on a panel actually for women in the law. And I had a woman who she was 10, we were talking about work life balance. And she was about 10 years senior to me. And she raised her hand and said, you know, I no real question here, but I just want to comment that out of the five of you on this panel, no one here is talking about mom guilt. And I feel like that is a dramatic step mm-hmm. forward from mm-hmm. a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So thanks to many, many women who have blazed the path and, you know, set that example as well. You know, I think that's also a huge part of it. So final question. The women and men who are listening to this will be listening to it at the end of Mother's Day. I wonder if you have a message for moms out there as they celebrate another Mother's Day, or maybe their first Mother's Day. Alexandra? Be kind to yourself. We live in a day and age where we're juggling so much with one child, with work, with a spouse, with family, that we can get so caught up in what everyone else is doing. We are natural caregivers. Listen to yourself. Be kind to yourself. I think that is the message that will give us so much freedom now and in the future. Leslie? Very similar. I tell tell my mom friends this, especially the new moms all the time, but you are enough. Um, You are enough for your children, and and that's what they need, and you're doing a great job. (laughs) Well, thanks to you both. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Alexandra Elizabeth blog is Making Motherhood Visible, and Leslie Pearlson's blog is B Plus Boston. Please look out for both of those blogs.
Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is John Parker and Doug Sugarts. Vakanda Loingafe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.